Hello, listeners. Welcome or welcome back. I am thrilled to present today's interview with a very special guest, Heather Flannery, the Chief Executive Officer of Consensus Health. The first time I met Heather was back in 2018 at the Distributed Health Conference in Nashville, hosted by Hashed Health and BTC Media. I've been following her work and watching her webinars on healthcare and blockchain for years now. Her work is undoubtedly part of the inspiration for me to start Health Unchained. A few weeks ago, I was lucky enough to moderate a panel on Web 3.0 in Austin, where Heather was one of the panelists. Shout out to the Austin Blockchain Collective. Heather is a leader and advocate for blockchain and healthcare, and the way she can articulate the state of healthcare and blockchain in the market is just incredible. Her valuable insights come from years of entrepreneurial experience, technology development, and global volunteerism in healthcare and life sciences. I'm already looking forward to a sequel episode with Heather. Let me know what you think. This episode was recorded on March 5th, and much news around COVID-19 and the cancellation of HIMSS, the first in its 58-year history, has happened after our recording, but I decided to include parts of that conversation for completeness. Before we get into it, I have a couple quick messages for the audience. The Health Unchained podcast has recently joined the Health Podcast Network, which connects content creators, listeners, and organizations working to improve health and care for people around the world. Health Unchained is the first and only blockchain-focused show to join the Health Podcast Network, and I'm looking forward to being part of this growing community and sharing my insights. I'd like to thank Dan Kendall, host of Digital Health Today, and Mike Baselli, host of Passionate Pioneers, for recognizing Health Unchained and inviting me to the Health Podcast Network. If you are looking for a way to get weekly industry news and highlights in the blockchain healthcare space, subscribe to Robert Miller's newsletter on bert.substack.com. Robert is a senior consultant at Consensus Health, and he does a great job curating top stories affecting the industry. A link to the newsletter is in the show notes. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to the Health Unchained podcast. Today's guest is the CEO of Consensus Health, Heather Flannery. Consensus Health is a recent spin-off out of one of the most foundational blockchain-focused organizations in the world. I'm super excited to have you on the show today, and I'm looking forward to learning more about your experiences and your vision for blockchain and healthcare. How's it going, Heather? How are you? I'm well. It's a it's a very very interesting time in healthcare in the U.S. market right now, um, given everything going on with COVID nineteen. It's it's uh, it's busy and it's intense, and I am also delighted to be here with you, Ray. Yeah, it's been uh, it's quite some time. I've been trying to book you, and I'm really happy that we have this time today. And speaking of COVID nineteen, another announcement actually made just today. Uh, today's March. Fifth, this will be published later, but the HIMSS conference was also canceled because of the coronavirus. So, um, you know, I thought that was really interesting. And I think that's the right move, and most people do as well. And I'm wondering if they're going to do some sort of virtual conference in, in replacement of that. Well, you know, I'm a, um, I'm a very active volunteer at HIMSS, and I'm honored to co-chair the Blockchain in Healthcare Task Force for HIMSS uh, for for FY19 and FY20 with my colleague from Microsoft, David Holding. Uh, we had lots of involvement in the content planning and the preparation uh, for HIMS 20, particularly a wide range of blockchain specific content and curriculum and activities. It is, uh, it was 
it's just absolutely impossible to overstate how sad and disappointing it is to see so much extraordinary work from so many smart people and dedicated people, unfortunately not be able to come to fruition. But Ray, I do agree with you. It is the right choice. It was the right choice. Consensus Health and the, uh, the US Veterans Administration we're doing a panel together to unveil and announce a major initiative of ours on Monday the 9th um, at the HIMSS Blockchain Pre-Conference Symposium. And really at almost the exact same timing that HIMSS made their decision, we made a parallel decision, the VA and Consensus Health, to back out of that panel. And it's, you know, everyone was evaluating the same sets of data at the same time and arriving at the same conclusions, you know, with a matter of hours of difference about uh, when the calls were made. But as public health professionals, as clinicians and scientists and policymakers, it's super interesting that in the microcosm of this, of the, the small organization of consensus health, you can see playing out in our own decision-making processes, the competing issues of fiduciary responsibility and financial performance and business success against population health, public health, patient-focused problems. And in the, you know, in the microcosm of having to decide what to do about COVID-19, I observed in myself and in all my colleagues those tensions playing out in real time and our whole industry had to face those tensions it's it's not trivial but we made we made the public health and the population health centered decision i well, find it to be completely surreal as a professional in our industry to be in a year without hints it's it's just surreal before we get into consensus health and blockchain and everything i kind of want to get to know you a little bit better and for our audience to understand, you know, your background and, you know, where you come from, what you've done throughout your career. So if you want to start kind of, you know, how did you get into technology and business and healthcare? Well, it's interesting. I, I have always been uh, a futurist and a person who was inspired by positive transformation with emerging tech. And as a, a high school student, I was a computer geek. And I started my first company at the dawn of the commercial internet in, in 1994, uh, 1995, and I graduated high school in 1994. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a business that did some of the first ever backend supply chain logistics orchestration behind a website front end, which sounds so prosaic right now, but at that time, websites were just online brochures, and that's Everyone wanted to believe that that's all this was. All it is is just putting your brochures online. Why should I care about this? Yeah. Web uh, 1.0. <laughs> Web 1.0, yep. So my, um, I was inspired and I saw the potential of the technology along with many others, you know, long sure. before that was a mainstream understanding. And so uh, being perhaps a little bit rebellious, maybe a little bit difficulty with authority, things like that, I was much more inclined to go start my own business than I was to you know, participate in academia where I couldn't learn what was going on because I was driving it. Like it was happening because of people like me, not only me, many others, we were, we were making it happen in real time. So that, that kind of spirit of transformation and disruption before anybody used the word disruption every third word like we do now, uh, that was that was always kind of a defining defining characteristic of me, and uh, so I, I ended up throughout my life being a serial entrepreneur. I think of entrepreneurship as a form of psychopathology, uh, like you can't help it when you're entrepreneurial. It's it's a it's it's a funny way to think of it. But I've always been a technologist and I've always been an entrepreneur. And then in the background of my life my childhood and my early adulthood. I had, I had a lot of different healthcare and, and um, I'll say, well, I'll just leave it at healthcare. Healthcare and related challenges in my family life, in my personal life, um, in my, you know, I was a caregiver to an aging grandmother who lived with me at one point. I had 
I had my own health challenges. I also had an uncle who went to medical school when I was a girl and he was my hero. And I was inspired by the potential of science and everything. Long story short, between a range of different things that were intrinsic motivators to me, in about 2005, I did a, uh, you know, a hard left on my career and decided I would focus the rest of my professional life on seeking to contribute to this field in any way that I could. And since then, I've had um, several, I've had three ventures in healthcare and life sciences. And, um, and I'm very, very proud to lead Consensus Health today. Wow, that's awesome. Congrats on that. Definitely a big accomplishment there. And um, another question for you. Can you describe how you manage all your different leadership roles in multiple organizations and just general blockchain advocacy work? How do you manage all that? It's interesting. I have to laugh because I am I, I can't deny that I'm a glutton for punishment when it comes to volunteerism. I, it's it's uh, the reason I do it is because in my mind, the way that I look at the world and the way that I see it, these things really aren't separate things. They are pieces and parts of a complex adaptive system and integrated whole. And my mission is to achieve the goals. So whatever needs to happen to achieve those goals, it needs to happen. And if I see a way to help that or assist it or facilitate it in some way, I have to do it. I have to do it because the mission must be achieved. Failure is not an option. So there are things that are outside the limits of a private for-profit company. We have to engage academia. We have to engage government standards and standards development and propagation and all of that is are really important pieces of a super complex system so that i don't think of it as separate things though i wonder if that would be viewed negatively by many for me to say that but it's one mission no i think that makes sense you find the synergies with these different companies roles organizations and you you're building for a single mission or vision in the end is to improve healthcare for society uh, through technology. So yeah, I think that does make sense. When did you first hear about blockchain? <laughs> um, well, like many, I heard about the magic internet money uh, that, that was the biggest scam of the century and all of those things. And I will admit, and I'm not proud to admit that there was a little stretch of time there where I scoffed and huffed and rolled my eyes along with others. And that embarrasses me so much to this day. I'm just, <gasps> I'm scandalized remembering those re re initial reactions, but it helps me stay humble when I'm engaging the rest of the world that's still scoffing and rolling their eyes and talking about, you know, the Silk Road stuff or whatever. Um, so, so I spent time being dismissive, but as a technologist, it kept, it kept making me go, huh, what? What's this now? And I, I started to just poke around the edges of the technology, trying to set aside things. And it was, um, it was when Ethereum launched and smart contracts launched, and it was actually uh, Gem that play from uh, with with Philips Healthcare. It was early. That uh, that first play right after the Ethereum launch and everything involved with that smart contracts just totally changed everything right. and also made me rethink totally what I thought about tokenization and crypto and all that. And at the time I was running, uh, I had a going concern that was my business that had an offering called the managed ecosystem for integrated obesity treatment. That's mm -hmm. what we called our offering. What better phrase could possibly describe all that came later in our field than a managed ecosystem, right? So, so the whole offering that I had put together was as if you were deliberately laying the groundwork for this new tech, but then I could not get it adapted. I could not transform the, the, the current contract structures, the current business model. And ultimately I exited that and decided I needed to, I needed to go all in on this tech. So can you 
kind of briefly describe the origins of consensus and then the healthcare subdivision of consensus and then kind of describe what happened when the spinoff happened or why the spinoff occurred? Yeah, sure. So um, I am, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to have uh, worked for Mr. Joseph Lubin since, uh, so, so back in the summer of 18, I approached consensus with a vision for consensus health. And they decided to hire me, uh, and I started, um, what was it, the end of August 2018. Hmm. And uh, I started as the global leader for the healthcare and life sciences vertical, which is basically a, de- was a department inside of consensus effectively. And over, the, over that intervening 18 months or so, from then to now, there was a tremendous amount of external change, you know, wild ride in the markets, uh, crypto winter, uh, regulatory uncertainty, uh, economic uncertainty, all sorts of challenges. And then internally to consensus, consensus is a really um, a radical organization in, in many ways uh, and, and, has, and was willing to take risks to manifest the vision of what what they wanted consensus to be. And so in so internally, there's a lot of experimentation and creativity around dearly held values that they wanted to manifest and still are manifesting, uh, mixed with all this external uncertainty and, and extreme dynamism. Meanwhile, they're doing incredible engineering work. I, I, I am so honored to to support and to help bring to market those core innovations that the the amazing team that Joe Lubin has assembled and and supported over time, it's it's really it's really tremendous. Yeah, no, I'm curious. You mentioned you know that the values of consensus and as they continue to propagate throughout the all the fields at consensus, can you kind of share some of those values at consensus? Sure. So some of the values would include um, radical transparency, self-organization, decentralization, self-sovereignty. Those are, I would say, definitively four core ideas and principles about the culture and values of the organization. And candidly, they are not magically manifested from the ether, no, you know, pun intended, they they come from the characteristics made possible with with uh, decentralization and dis- and and uh, and blockchain technologies. So they're they're kind of a social emotional equity of a technical paradigm or a technology that makes a certain paradigm possible. Yeah, I think people don't realize how important that is when you talk about decentralized and distributed systems everyone's used to you know the new app or technology device but they don't really they're all confined within the same sort of societal frameworks right you know there's a company that creates something they kind of hold that data you interface with that company and you form relationships with that company but there's no broader decentralized vision or at least there is now but you know Five years ago, there wasn't any, or there was very few. Um, So what is your vision for Consensus Health? Uh, Well, before I give you the vision for Consensus Health, I I would love to just give you one further metaphor, if I could, about about this notion of decentralization and and how it re-architects economies and social structures and business structures. There, there was a time in American history where we were at the peak points of the Industrial Revolution and we were turning into a manufacturing powerhouse as a nation. And every factory all over the place had power generation stuck onto the side of the buildings. And part of, if you were a factory owner, an industrialist, part of how you competed was how effective was your power generation. It was usually completely unique and different than the guys down the street. And it was part of the basis of competition. And then there was a time that came. And when it came, it came fast, which is important for what we're talking about here. When it came, it happened fast. Everybody turned off their power generations and connected to the grid. And you started having 
utilities and a distributed power grid that was no longer that made power no longer part of the basis of competition for manufacturing. And we are this is so much more than just a technical revolution. This this technology enables us to creatively conceive of everything that we're doing separately today that we could perhaps do far more cost effectively and efficiently together, you know, on the aggregate in mutualized or federated infrastructures. And examining healthcare and life sciences globally through that lens is is what Consensus Health is doing. We're examining it, we're thinking very deeply about it. And we are working through not only the technical, but also the policy, the advocacy, the ethics, the the implications structurally and systemically for how to affect that kind of positive change for all the stakeholder groups. That That's what Consensus Health is doing. And how we will do it is by putting our platform and products in market and by running and operating large scale infrastructures that are purpose built for particular particular challenge areas but that that's who that's who we are and who we will be and our work is probably going to span a number of lifetimes <laughs> yeah I, I totally agree it will you know this is a generational kind of new technology that's up, up and coming so it's very exciting stuff but it will take time and even if you think about money and how money is sort of centralized in a way that governments kind of facilitate the flow of money and the, in the supply future, that might not be a point of competition amongst governments and government like powerful governments might not be the ones who have the most you know stable or important currency i think you can apply that kind of rationale to many different cross sections of human civilization and money supply and, and the role of the state is definitely one of them so let's jump into Consensus Health and your vision for the company and tell me a little bit about how it's also structured. Sure. So as of the 2nd of March, which was Monday of this week, and it's Thursday right now, uh, we turned the lights on and became operational as an independent company. Uh, we we're, we have a very close and will re remain in a deep and integrated business relationship with Consensus AG, which is the parent company. It's a Swiss entity, operates in 20 countries. Uh, we, uh, but we will operate with commercial independence, meaning the relationships between Consensus Health and Consensus are, uh, will be negotiated as business relationships. And uh, the, for example, Consensus Health will be a value-added reseller of all of Consensus's core infrastructure products. And we will take those and bring them to market in the healthcare and life sciences vertical. And we will build our products and offerings on top. And we will ensure that healthcare and life sciences customers have a single point of contact and that compliance and other industry-specific requirements are, are handled and managed comprehensively, and that a, a particular healthcare or life sciences enterprise, public or private, doesn't need to speak to 15 or 20 different product groups, you know, mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to see about getting a clinical or scientific or business problem resolved. And we will provide the domain knowledge, you know, Consensus Health will be is already we have not announced all of our staff yet uh, we're announcing them one at a time <laughs> but uh consensus health is staffed with industry thought leaders not only industry technology leaders both yeah and a few of those leaders that have been announced have also been on my show uh so it's pretty pretty exciting uh <laughs> and yes. awesome i think that's really cool <laughs> um I have actually a question from one of my listeners who sent this to me. Does Consensus Health just advise or are they developing their own product? And which projects has, have you seen that seems to have the most pain reduction, I guess, in the industry? Sure. So the first of those two questions, uh, Consensus Health is building its own platform. Mm -hmm. We are also building our own products that will be deployed on our platform. Uh, 
So a digital, and, and, like a blockchain type platform, or is it a yes? Though it's platform? it's a it's a it's a software it's mm -hmm. a software infrastructure. It will be run in multiple instances. It's not one network, but mm -hmm. a but a. Um, so our our platform, when it reaches a certain level of maturity, will also be opened up for third party products to run on our platform and benefit from the shared services and resources that we create and evolve over time. Those will be in five categories. That is bioethics, privacy, cybersecurity, identity, and compliance. Hmm. Those, those are our assessment of major unmet needs in our industry for cohesion and um, major, major technology and legal and advocacy and business challenges that are cross-sectional and germane to every use case in our industry. There, that's why those capabilities will ride at the platform layer and any product deployed on our platform will be will be using those shared services and a common cohesive architectural framework. Now, the, it, I, as an analogy, I like um, you know uh, roads and cars. You could think of the platform as the roads system, and uh, and the individual vehicles that you might design. You know, special purpose are individual cars that ride on the road. So we we also are building, metaphorically, cars that drive on the road. And we have, we have a portfolio of particular business and clinical and scientific problem areas that we are building product to solve or address those uh, problem areas. And uh, we've, we're not prepared to announce those products yet, uh, but that is what we're doing. We also, we also are providing strategic advisory services, though we are not a professional services company fundamentally. We are a product company. Interesting. Or even a platform company. Platform and product. Okay. Both. Okay. And his other question was, which projects have you seen that have reduced the most pain in the industry? Oh, already? Um, well, there, in terms of what has already reduced a lot of pain in the industry, I, I would say that it's very early and there, mm -hmm. there, there has not been a lot of pain reduction <laughs> yeah. to date. Uh, we're sitting here talking at the beginning of the beginning. That's fair. How is blockchain adoption and awareness in healthcare developing globally and also domestically? Well, uh, this pattern of blockchain, not Bitcoin, or, you know, is, is unfortunate because what it does is deconstructs the value prop for digital scarcity. So digital scarcity is a thing. It's important. Mm -hmm. It is philosophically and intellectually critical to understanding where this goes. But if you do the blockchain, not Bitcoin argument, what that says is, well, we only care about this layer of a stack. We only care about this layer of stack because we don't like that layer because it sounds like criminality in our head, you know? So, so I am a big proponent of the potential of tokenization and the power of digital scarcity and the implication of that. I mean, if you think about, we live in a world where we just infinitely copy data. We cop right. copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We can move away. We can move away from that. You know, so it, it, this exists at multiple layers, but um, I don't I don't think that the industry has any kind of thorough understanding. And even professionals who focus on nothing but this full time are still at the stage where we are arguing about semantics constantly and reasonable people can have completely different mental models and vocabularies about how they talk about these things. And that's where we are even among professionals who this is all they do <laughs> and all they think about all day, every day, you know, blockchain in healthcare. I mean, a niche of a niche of a niche, right? And the, the experts, air quotes, myself included with air quotes, mm -hmm. we are all trying to arrive at even just common mental models so we can have an argument that makes any sense and not just be arguing about what we mean by terminology. So, 
I do think we've made some strategic errors as an industry by by believing that a goal is to get, you know, the public at large to understand this technology. I think that is a major unforced strategic error of our entire industry. Um, I'll, I'll use as a metaphor, the introduction of radio to human society. Uh, I would argue that there was some infinitesimal percentage of the population when they were listening to the radio for the first time that had even the vaguest notion at an engineering level about the electromagnetic spectrum, about how it is that radio waves were captured from thin air and translated into audio that vibrated your eardrum. It's magic. Like, absolutely. Any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Thank you, Sir Isaac Asimov. So the experience of radio is what mattered. It was a transformative, incredible experience that you could hear someone that wasn't there, right? Mm -hmm. The engineering, the way that it happened, is the, the way that the science got done was only interesting to scientists, engineers, hobbyists, and enthusiasts, and those entrepreneurs or business people seeking to commercialize that tech. That's, that's those parties who needed to understand about radio waves. We have made the crucial mistake and wasted a tremendous amount of time by having blanket educational content that went to everybody, irrespective of their position, trying to get them to understand, you know, we, we never, for some reason, we never needed to get anyone to understand cryptography generally, but now suddenly we do, right? And, uh, and on and on. So I think we lost a lot of time and we, we unfortunately turned off a lot of people because we weren't segmenting our message. It's, it's only technologists, hobbyists, entrepreneurs, engineers, people commercializing the tech, just like it was with radio, that needs to understand it. Everyone else that has business problems to solve, clinical problems to solve, that's where we have always needed to stay focused, you know, and, uh, and hopefully there'll be a lot more of that in the future. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. We don't really need to explain mining to at an engineering level <laughs> for people to appreciate the value that cryptocurrency or blockchain technology or decentralized ledger technology can offer. How critical is Ethereum's future success and scalability for consensus health? Uh, well, we are, we are heavily invested in the Ethereum ecosystem. There's no question about it. I mean, I made a judgment call about whether I was willing to bet my career on a particular tech stack before I ever approached Joe Lubin and proposed a vision for consensus health. So th there, there is no question that I personally believe, and this is my opinion and not a fact, no one could express an assertion in this category as a fact, mm -hmm. but I personally believe that our ecosystem is the most advanced has the most to offer humanity. I also believe that we are probably not going to live in a one in a one chain, one network future. That's that's you know not likely. And I believe that cross chain interoperability is absolutely critical path for healthcare and life sciences. So so even though I am, it is my role and one of the objectives of Consensus Health is to build value, create value on this platform, we cannot do so with vendor lock-in as part of the basis of competition or any, any kind of strategy. This is why, this is why uh, coopetition, mm -hmm. openly and ethically and transparently engaging with competitors as we share the goal of moving the dial on healthcare endpoints, that's core to our values and critical. But I'm not going to deny that we are an Ethereum-centric company. Yes, we are. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. On March 5th, 2020, Tampa-based Professional Credentials Exchange, LLC, or ProCredX for short, announced that it raised $3.5 million in an initial seed round of funding. 
ProCredX has developed a digital marketplace using decentralized ledger and machine learning technology to provide a solution for provider credentialing organizations to share, exchange, and monetize their credential data with a secure and private platform. Credentialing involves the mandated process of ensuring that a provider's education, training, certification, and work experience is verified and accurate. The effort to perform this work is typically very time-consuming, often up to four to six months of manual verification of data from health institutions and organizations. The lead investor, Spectrum Health Ventures, is based in Michigan, where ProCredX will be launching a statewide pilot across several regional markets later this year. ProCredX has partnered with R3 and has a license to build its marketplace on top of R3's Corda Enterprise. I had the opportunity to interview Anthony Bagando, the CEO of ProCredX, almost a year ago, before they had chosen R3's Corda for their DLT protocol layer. Check out episode 31 to learn more about how provider credentialing can be improved with decentralized ledger technology. And now back to our conversation with Heather Flannery, CEO of Consensus Health. What are the biggest misconceptions of blockchain when you speak with various healthcare executives? So one big misconception is a, a level of confusion about what a public blockchain is versus private blockchain networks versus any connection between those two or any future where the lines and the, the way that we conceptualize today, this hard line between public and private blockchain are going to dissolve. Mm -hmm. the, the hard lines are going to get blurrier and blurrier as this takes place. The, there's still a lot of confusion about, about, I mean, healthcare is a data economy, even though it's an opaque off-market data economy today. And the everyone wants to know all about the data and gets tangled up thinking or debating what data should live embedded within the chain of a blockchain versus more our, our position is more oriented around tightly coupled off-chain trusted compute and storage infrastructure. But I say tightly coupled to infer it's still a new architectural layer outside the firewalls of of enterprises that's another big that's another very big point of confusion is where does any of this live if you are say the cio of an enterprise where does this live in your architecture and uh and that that is not we it's funny as much as we've talked about you know repeated ourselves a thousand times i mean in, through 20 16 2017 like how many presentations did i see where it's like there's proof of work and there's proof of stake and there's mining and there's like the same stuff we failed we failed to actually paint a picture architecturally for enterprises of how what this meant especially when conceived of as a full stack in the big picture that that was a missing that was a missing piece it's one missing piece i've personally been very focused on trying to fill in for our vertical so when you're speaking to these executives, I'm sure there are different takes on it depending on who they are, if it's a CEO or chief technology officer or chief financial officer. Yeah. Um, can you describe some of those differences between their perspectives at the C-suite level? Sure. And and I don't have the same conversations with those parties. That's a, That's a really important point. The conversations I have with those audiences are totally different. And CISOs or CISOs are another important one, you know, chief information security officers. Right. So with with CFOs, um, tokenization, for example, is is very messy because the accounting for all things crypto is a is a mess. The tax situation is a mess. The compliance situation is a mess. So we love to talk about how great it is to theoretically use crypto economic incentive systems yet nobody knows how to value them on their balance sheet. What about an auditor who's gonna come in and, and audit your books? Where does that stand? You know, so, so that, those are extremely valid concerns from, a, from an audience like a CFO, who's, whose job it is to, to deal with that. Also, 
no CFO will approve anything unless they know that any risk that is introduced is underwritten somehow. You know, does your does your general liability policy cover whatever might go wrong with blockchain? Do you even know what might go wrong with blockchain? Have you sized it? What's the severity? What's the impact? What does it cost? You don't know those answers. Oh, by the way, what does it cost? Heuristics. We don't have standard heuristics by which we would measure the costs of different different platforms or implementations. So you can't today do an apples to apples price comparison of anything, nor can you accurately forecast costs based on different architectural choices and decisions. I mean, working on that problem is a business problem I live in day in and day out, because how do you price anything? How do you price anything? And likewise, if you're the customer, how do you buy anything? How do you budget for it? These are these are major challenges, particularly when you don't necessarily own it, right? You're talking about something that potentially you own some fraction in. And then if you own a fraction, do you own a fraction of the IP? Do you underwrite a fraction of the risk? Do you, uh, what about the capital? What about if capital sitting in a stable coin instead of fiat currency? What? I mean, I could keep going and going, and this is just the CFO track. Yeah. No, it's true. I think that the tax, the corporate tax, even personal income tax, how do we appropriately you know, allocate for all of that? It's, it's very different. Um, the norm you know, in most of the world, in many countries, is to collect tax in general. But I see a world where through socioeconomic changes with cryptocurrency and blockchain, There'll be new ways to fund our governance systems, uh, completely different ways that I can't even imagine at this point. Um, and that could be a whole other podcast. But I think that the idea behind, you know, funding social goods, public goods will be redefined in the next, you know, generation or two. And I'm, that's really exciting to me because I think it's I mean, you know, I think you would agree on that. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Ray, you're totally spot on and a, a, a comparator for you that will date me because I'm, I'm a, I'm a wee bit older than you. The, uh, the, there was a time where we used to get big, giant, long distance phone bills. I remember being a teenager mm. sneaking into the basement at night to talk to some guy across the country and getting in huge trouble. Mm. And I am not alone in my generation of people of teenagers getting in huge trouble for secretly running up these giant long distance phone bills. So that, but but that's when it ended. It ended not that long after I was a teenager. And you probably didn't grow up in a world where there were these terrifying long distance phone bills that your parents were going to find out about, you know, in a month when the bill showed up. But, you know, I remember calling cards were huge. My uh, my parents would use calling cards to talk to our family overseas. And um, that was like there were dozens hundreds of different companies doing calling cards selling them different rates that was huge yes. now that's completely out of business totally totally gone totally yeah. gone so long distance phone bills and the charges just left the economy and you know new innovations found their price sensitivity curve and sold new offerings in the market but yeah, there's a lot of things that we pay for today that have the potential to go away. There are parties who were needed and were necessary at a certain point in the technological development of our society that perhaps, maybe, may no longer be necessary today. I'm going to move on to a new question. Can you describe the rising interest in healthcare consortia? What are they doing right and what can they possibly be doing better? Mm. So, uh, so I raised a whole bunch of scary sounding open-ended questions earlier about the capital structures and, and risk profiles and all those things of, from the perspective of an individual enterprise looking to adopt or use this technology. Uh, I do actually have answers to those questions that I would propose at least as thesis or, or ideas or approaches. I, I really respect and admire the blockchain and healthcare consortia that exist today, uh, those would never have happened were it not for candidly courageous crusaders willing to put their professional reputations on the line to do something first 
do something before it was figured out and yeah. and to make an impact. So I have the, the, the most profound respect for all of those parties. Um, my good friend, uh, my good friend, John Bass, who's the CEO of Hashed Health, uh, really wisely divided blockchain consortia into two categories that I think are really smart. And those are consortia that are organized around the principle of the governance, like how does the consortia itself function, like the meta, the meta view of the consortia. And then there are consortia that were formed around a particular use case. Let's figure, you know, group of people form and let's solve a problem. And, uh, you know, in either case, in the governance ones, the use cases will follow. And in the use case ones, the governance has to follow. Um, I, I think no matter what, what we have to acknowledge is these folks are trailblazers. And I think they deserve a parade. I do. And, uh, and, and I think we should be more grateful for the risks that they have to take. The enterprises they represent are taking risks. The personalities, the individuals who step forward to lead are taking risks mm -hmm. and they're doing it for our industry. So I wish we were all just a little bit more, um, instead of skeptical, appreciative mm -hmm. of the work that they're doing. Like uh, the Synaptic Health Alliance ha stepped forward to lead went through a, a rigorous process to come up with something that would create value and that was achievable in all of the uncertainties that we live in. And they did it. You know, they, they decided on provider data uh, and they established provider data directory and they have accomplished a goal and they are doing so as competition working directly to together. It's like the lions lay down with the lambs. It's, it's unheard of in history. This is why I say they deserve a parade, you know. Um, the and, consensus and I health parade. I am looking forward to that event. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I really feel that people deserve to be celebrated when they take, when they take risks. You know, I, mm -hmm. I do. It's, it's just a, it's a feeling I have. It's not easy. It's not easy to put yourself forward and argue that you should do things before everybody else does them. And to win that argument and make progress, it's hard. Especially in a larger organization where there are so oh. many expectations and just the way things already work, it's hard to break those barriers. Absolutely. And every one of those large organizations is subject to the incumbent's dilemma, you know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, for anyone listening that's not familiar with the incumbent's dilemma, it's the problem where you might be able to invent things, but you can't necessarily convert, commercialize them because if you did, it would kill a larger existing business. And you have a fiduciary responsibility to have quarter by quarter earnings that only go up. Yeah, that whole expectation, I think, will be changing with a, a blockchain infrastructure society, too. Well, if the whole industry needs to see total healthcare expenditure go down and clinical and population health endpoints go way up, Somewhere, the money has to come out of the health economy while it, while also improving endpoints. And it's it's not simple. Yeah, if we look at it holistically, absolutely, that makes sense. But when it's individual companies looking out for their own bottom line and competitors also looking out for their own bottom line, it might not create a net positive for the industry, right? Well, for sure. I mean, it's, it's like I was mentioning earlier in our own struggle. We put so much effort into planning for hymns. We were, we were so excited to unveil our big story. You know, we, 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 we planned and we worked and we struggled. And then I volunteered all kinds of effort to, you know, all this content and programming and uh, to let it go. It's hard. I mean, I would watch a webinar if you're planning to present that in some sort of virtual experience. <laughs> I don't, would hate to see all that work go to waste. Uh, there may be a virtual experience coming soon. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying maybe. Okay. Well, maybe by the time this gets published, there'll be a more definite answer. Yeah. I'm going to move on to our next question here. And how important is community governance? We talked about consortia. How important is the governance when you're creating a decentralized solution? You know, that question reminds me that there was a back half of the consortia question that I didn't answer, which is what could they be doing better? 
And I would like to comment on that. Uh, one of the things that I did with, uh, I think it's nine other co-founders, we all came together and formed a nonprofit under the IEEE umbrella called Blockchain and Healthcare Global. Conveniently, it's phonetically pronounceable as BIG, B-I-H-G. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the goals of BIG is to help solve an unresolved issue, which is it is unlikely, just like it's unlikely that there will be one blockchain platform in the future, it's also unlikely that there will be one giant healthcare consortia that rules them all like Sauron from, sure. you know, it's, it's not going to happen that way. Well, these consortia are all generally deeply struggling because it's hard, not because they're not super talented people, because it's actually that hard. They are struggling to figure out the operations within their consortia. However, we can't just big build bigger silos. We have to, you know, it, it, bigger silos are better than millions of tiny silos. I'll give you that. But, but building bigger silos isn't the goal. So the, one of the focus areas of blockchain and healthcare global is to be the consortia of consortium, consortia, the network of networks and the convener and orchestration, you know, neutral territory, unbiased, not a standards development organization, but really connected to propagation uh, and certification to conformity of standards and especially cross consortia. We have to have workflows that flow mm -hmm. across consortia not just one. So you have one consortia that says, we're gonna take on this use case. Well, in all likelihood, there's gonna be another consortia that takes on the same use case. And patients, right? Patients are going to have, they're going to have workflows that span consortia, just like today they have clinical care that spans multiple health systems and often different health plans. So the same situation exists and we hope I wouldn't say it's something the consortia are doing wrong, but I do hope that I can inspire all of them, the Coalesce Health Alliance, the Synaptic Health Alliance, the Health Utility Network, the Melody Organization, the on and on. I'm hoping that we can inspire all of them to begin to convene around cross-consortia collaboration and also a common advocacy position for industry self-regulation, jurisdiction by jurisdiction around the world. How many of them are these? How many of these consortia are actually working with Big right now, or part of Big? None. Okay. So the invitation <laughs> is out there, everybody. If you're listening to this, head up, yeah. Heather. We're gonna build this together. <laughs> I'm uh, yes. Thank you, Ray. Sure. What are some examples of good blockchain-enabled use cases you are seeing in the marketplace, and then what are some bad examples? Mm. So early in my blockchain history, if that's such a thing. Uh, I was mystified trying to figure out why all of all the possible use cases, there were so many, and they, and, and they seemed so many to have real merit, you know, real merit, why certain projects or initiatives were getting funded and were moving forward, and others just seemed to languish or falter. I think that was also confounded by the ICO craze where there was a lot of projects that were that were purely financially opportunistic. And so that sort of muddied the water and made it harder to recognize patterns. And uh, I was studying this because I was trying to do it myself in my last venture. So really striving for that. And I ended up seeing a pattern that now seems so obvious, but at the time it wasn't obvious. And that's, and that turned into something I call the PHI readiness framework. And I put that out in the market and have been presenting on that and using that as a framework for industry education now for goodness, at least two years, actually more like three years at least. And uh, the, the PHI readiness, readiness framework it's an X and Y coordinate, and the X axis is, is unified with time and also the amount of PHI that's involved in a use case. So how much PHI over time mm -hmm. on the X axis and on the Y axis, population health impact. 
So for example, something that had an incremental cost savings might be totally laudable and we should absolutely do it, but it's not necessarily going to impact population health in a big way. But it doesn't mean it's bad or weak or unimportant. It's just so that y-axis is population health impact. And then I divided the transformation of our health economy and healthcare delivery infrastructure into three phases, stages actually, stage one, stage two, stage three. Stage one, uh, we, are, we are leaving stage one now. It's been going on, I think. We're, we're in between stage one and stage two. And stage one are those use cases that involve no PHI or protected health information at all. And the, the pattern that I recognize is, Eureka, I've got it. The things, that are, the things that are working, the things that are getting funded and that people are able to put into production don't involve any health data at all. <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> or from any a regulatory patient. perspective. Yeah, any, any patient information. And uh, an example of that would be provider data directory that's working mm -hmm. with published public information, none of which is confidential but it still produces an extraordinary return on investment to mutualize and federated the, federate the infrastructure involved and have, have a common provider data directory among a, an ecosystem of participants instead of everybody maintaining their own poorly synchronized and mostly wrong provider data directories. So that would be a perfect example of a stage one use case and it's fantastic and the ROI is great and it's working and it and it was early and it's it's has so much growth potential on top of that then and there's a bunch of other things in that stage one too I mean I could list them all but it's it includes many supply chain use cases it includes um, a, a number of revenue cycle use cases all of those things though have to stop short before they get to the actual patient. So they get to the actual patient, now you're into PHI. And now you're into the compliance uncertainties and you're, you're into those bioethical challenges and, and so on. I'll skip stage two and go to stage three just quickly. Stage three are patient-centric, transformative and revolutionary. Mm -hmm. It would be like the holy grail of coordinating care across organizational boundaries. All the right. puzzle pieces fit into place. Everyone's getting yeah. the right care at the right time. And it's yeah. cost effective I, it's, and high quality. It's, yes. And you, you're achieving precision medicine at scale. Right. You're those, those kinds of things. And there's a list of things in, those, in that category too. Web3 digital therapeutics are in that category. Um, I mean, exciting, exciting stuff. There's this giant chasm, though, between those two things. It's like the Gulf of Mexico. It's just huge chasm. And that's stage two. And my PHI readiness framework proposes that the way that our industry transforms, how do we bridge the gap, is through our use of research modalities. And I would argue that using uh, well-designed, ethically administered, well-overseen uh, research modalities would allow us to do anything in stage three that you can't do in mainstream medicine today. Hmm. You could do them under research protocols on limited basis. And not only can you, but you should, because that's how we need to learn. We should use classic empirical models. Uh, and, and research is executed like a walled garden today. It's got distinct funding. It's got its own technology infrastructure. Patients are abstracted into participants. Providers are abstracted into investigators. You have IRBs, you've got sponsors, you've got a separate body of law, right? So you can essentially carve it out even though it's happening inside. And, and so that stage two is where we are, we are using this technology to, to, to conduct research on how it will work in stage three. And I, we are prepared to move forward with that full speed ahead right now, including in all of the regulate the heavily regulated economies of the world. Interesting. I like that framework and how you described it. It helps to you know paint the picture for folks who are just kind of getting into the the space and understanding use cases and what what makes sense for them. How important are HIPAA documentation requirements in the future of healthcare privacy? How important is HIPAA? Well. 
I'm going to answer that in a in a different way. I I'm going to say let's rephrase how important is privacy. And we are living unfortunately in a world where through unintended consequences, totally unintended consequences, we we now are almost in a post-privacy era. IE Cambridge Analytica and the ability to cross-sectionally aggregate and analyze and re-identify anything that's been de-identified. We have lost ground massively on privacy and it has nothing to do with HIPAA. HIPAA, HIPAA didn't save us from this mm-hmm. and, and it can't save us from this, nor did the Privacy Act, nor, nor do any of this. This is, a, this is a technological revolution with respect to data and its availability and impact and we have a new technological revolution that is going to bring privacy back to humanity. It is going to restore our civil liberties while actually allowing the vision of, of healthcare and life sciences and population health to, to expand instead of retract, but doing so by the engagement of the original data subjects in a patient-centered, voluntary, consensual, and just way. So so the what we're talking about shouldn't be thought of as HIPAA documentation. It should be talking about we lost our privacy accidentally through unintended consequences due to a technological revolution. We have our new technological revolution driving what we call privacy in depth. That is a core offering and focus of consensus health as a business. But what does that mean we need? It means if we have a new technological revolution that is the counterbalance, we need a new body of law. We need to adjust and update and expand and enhance and rethink our regulatory frameworks to support the return of our civil liberties and the return of our privacy. So our advocacy position is just as important as the evolution of the technology itself. Can you describe how federated learning can solve some of our privacy and security concerns with personal data? Yeah, quickly? so uh, it's actually federated analytics. So, so if you think about being able to perform an analysis on data that you don't move, that you don't send from point A to point B, but you I, send I this- I guess what is federated learning? What is federated analytics? Yeah. I have to define federated analytics for you to define federated learning. So so everybody, I think, has a notion of what analytics means. Federated analytics means that you're performing an analysis on data at the edge. You're not bringing the data somewhere so that you can analyze it. Federated learning means that you're bringing a machine learning algorithm to the edge to where the data is, and then you're training the data where it sits without ever moving it or disclosing it. And then all you're returning is the inferences and the findings. You are not, you are not disclosing the underlying data that was used for training. But blockchain is critical to this vision because it enables the access control layer that would facilitate the deployment of those algorithms into enterprise and patient sovereign systems. And it also allows you to do weighted attribution. Ray, this subject of federated learning and its implications for healthcare would be the subject of an entirely additional robust conversation that I'd love to have with you. <laughs> I would love to have you back on the show. I think that's an appropriate idea, actually. Let's, let's, let's uh, set that up in the future for sure. Quick lightning round. I know you're, we're limited on time here. So what do you believe in that most people would disagree with? I think I am an optimist and that um, pragmatists and cynics get irritated with me and I kind of will sound like a cheerleader sometimes, but um, I believe that we have to imagine the world as we wish it to be and then strive together to achieve it. And honestly, I don't believe that it's in any way impossible. It has to do with unity and cohesion and activating, you know, activating people along their common values to drive a transformation. So 
I don't believe in the negative, dark, cynical future where all is lost and we should all just stop bothering and withdraw and let it happen. We can and are and do shape our future. And I just am unwilling to believe that we can't bring about the positive future that myself and so many others see so clearly. So maybe that's that's really what I believe that others don't, that it's possible. What is your favorite book? Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand. What are your thoughts on the AI singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045, according to Ray <laughs> Kurzweil? <laughs> so when I read The Age of Spiritual Machines by Kurzweil for the first time when it was published, it was a transformative and life-changing experience for me that shaped the rest of my the rest of my life. I've never it's I've never seen the world the same way since and everything has been for me an evolution of those ideas. Now I know Kurzweil didn't originate a lot of those ideas, but that book, The Age of Spiritual Machines was when I personally first encountered many of those ideas. Uh, the the thinking about the singularity and general intelligence um quantum supremacy how it all relates together it's a bigger discussion i will tell you that uh i think that i don't know if there's a way to summarize what i think about that it's just a giant discussion let's put it on the list for our next conversation how's that <laughs> it, it would it would be a good follow on from the federate from where does it go from federated learning I agree. and yeah last it's, question I, for you i can't net that out in a few that's words. okay <laughs> final question <laughs> for you what do you like doing on your free time how do you unwind so what i would love to say is that i work out a lot and i'm super into exercise and fitness that is a goal for me it is a goal but is not true it's not true what i actually love to do is lay on the couch and read books hmm. That's what, <laughs> that's what I really Thanks for sharing to. that. No, it's good. When I when I like when I go on vacation, my dream is to bring a big pile of books with me and to like lay by a pool somewhere and just read and think and and uh you know, I love to spend time with my husband, you know, and debate about whatever we're reading and mm. that is a big definition of quality of life for me. So somehow I have to get into there that in that future of myself, that future vision, I'm working out and being really athletic too. <laughs> that's that's my goal. You have to imagine that as part of your future and then it'll become reality. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's so it awesome. Yeah. Heather, it's been such a pleasure like talking to you and I really appreciate your time. I truly do. I think we should you know, follow up with this conversation with another episode and um, you're truly a visionary, so I'm looking forward to uh, future conversations. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome, Ray. This was a joy and I look forward to next conversations and I'm so glad. I hope you get to meet more of the Consensus Health team as well. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.